You be seated, and uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and get it out, and let's go to um, 1 Corinthians chapter 4 for a few minutes before we come to the table. We've been talking uh, in this book of Corinthians for the last few weeks, and Paul's been challenging us to uh, be very careful that we don't find ourselves divided uh, because we've pushed a man to the center of our movement. That, uh, that we make the mistake of believing that actually we can follow men and that they're a good substitute uh, for the Lord. And then last week, Russ uh, unfolded for us some truth out of chapter 3 where he talked about the journey of comparison and how dangerous it is for us to live lives where we're comparing ourselves one to another. So it's funny because, uh, you know, if you step back and kind of look at the bird's eye view, how tempting it is for us to push a man to the center and say, well, he's got the answers. We're just going to follow him. And uh, when that doesn't work, then we push ourselves to the center by comparing ourselves to other people and saying, well, at least I have more answers than that person. I'll follow me. And Paul is really saying both of those are broke, that uh, there's a better way. So let's go to chapter 4 and see what he says. So, because we've been talking about this, the word so... Then men ought to regard us, and he's talking about him and Apollos and Peter, the other disciples. They ought to regard us as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the secret things of God. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I'm judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. It's an interesting next sentence. He says, my conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. That's interesting. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait till the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. And then I want you to hear this last sentence, okay? Because it's going to springboard what we're going to be talking about before we come to the table. And it's this. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. Each will receive his praise from God. Does that seem odd to you? That God is saying that at the end of time, God is going to be a praiser and that he is going to give praise. So here's the question that I want to ask you this morning from this text. And that is, will you receive praise from God? You know, uh, think about it. The word praise it's got a lot of words around it, things like delight, things like joy, things like uh, desire. Will you get these things from God? Will God have these things for you? We, uh, I was a part of a wedding uh, last night, beautiful wedding, but during the rehearsal, uh, they wanted to have this little girl, uh, you know, a two-year-old in a nice dress, uh, come running down the aisle uh, with flowers. Have you ever been a part of a wedding like that? And what does that usually equal? The bride being upstaged, right? And because uh, it's just cute, that little kid can do no wrong. And so they're talking about how do we, uh, how do we get her to go from the back to the front, all right? So she's walking down the aisle. They try it the first way is let's just have her walk down the aisle and see if she'll do it. And she's spotting faces of people on both sides of the aisle that she doesn't know and her face is starting to crinkle and you know and tears are coming up because uh men terrify her 
until her daddy steps in front of the aisle and kneels down and she sees her dad and all the fear goes away and her face lights up and she just comes to life and comes running to dad. I mean, you can just see the delight in her face. Will God have that for you? I mean, that's amazing, isn't it? And it's crazy because how you answer that question, will God praise you? I, I'm going to make a bold statement here, and I'm going to say it's going to mark the rest of your life. And let me try to explain that. Because how you answer this may shed more of a light on your shame, your sense of guilt, maybe your uncertainty of who God is, maybe you're burned out on Christianity, maybe you're angry at the church, Maybe you have doubts about whether or not God really even exists. Maybe you're so angry with God and other people around you because you don't think that there's any delight that God has for you because all God could possibly have for you is judgment, disappointment, that God's sitting in heaven with his arms folded and everybody else, he shines when he sees them like the little girl running down the aisle. But when he sees you, you know deep down in your heart, when he sees you, he goes, what wasted potential. What a disappointment. What could have been? Oh, I'm God, so I know what everybody else sees, and they all love it, and they praise it, and you keep this image going to where everybody is friends with you, and they all think you're a great person, but I see behind the curtain, and I see what's really going on. And boy, what a disappointment. And we live in the shame of that, and since we live in the shame of that, God is always over there, and I'm always over here, and I can never get over there because the chasm of getting over my own disappointment of who God wants me to be, but I'm not. I can never exceed that, and so God and I never really come together. So I come to church and vicariously live through Randy's faith, or I vicariously live through my small group's faith, or I vicariously hope that maybe one day somebody will say something that will bridge the chasm and I'll feel good about me. And so Christianity becomes this powerless thing. And it, when it becomes powerless, guess what Sunday morning becomes? This isn't a part of the Sabbath rest. This isn't a part of coming in and our souls resting with God. This kind of becomes that thing when you don't really throw up, but you do throw up and it gets stuck in the back of your throat and you taste it. You know what I'm talking about? You do know what I'm talking about, don't you? To where you go home and you get in the car and all the drive home is a list of complaints. I can't believe, I can't believe, I can't, you know. He said, that, I can't believe. That person sitting next to me, did you see what they were wearing? Why? Because it's powerless. All this is a bunch of people sitting in a warehouse wishing the temperature was different. Trust me, this side says it's too cold, this side is too hot. Okay, so here's the question we're going to ask. Will God praise you? I want you to answer that question today. And then let's take that answer to the table. Let's go back to verse 1. Because Paul starts this, not me. He brings it up. He's the one. He says, so then men ought to regard us as servants. So he's connecting this with servants. And you know, I can kind of handle that. We should be servants. Matter of fact, we should serve. I can serve. Can you serve? I can serve. I mean, I can do that. I love serving occasionally. But let me tell you, it gets a little thicker here because it's not just serving. 
What Paul is saying, and he's showing us for our benefit too, he wasn't just serving, he was a servant. The actual Greek word that he uses for servant, because he could use many Greek words for the, for the word servant, but he uses the word under rower. What that is, is exactly what it sounds. It was the slave in a galley ship that rowed a boat that was on the lowest level of the boat. They were called the unseen rowers. They were the low of the low. If you had no status when you got on the boat, guess what? You went to the bottom. Nobody saw you. Nobody's going to see you. You're probably going to die down there. And Paul said, that's what I am. I'm an under rower. I'm the unseen slave servant of the kingdom of God. (laughs) You know, that kind of sticks with me. Because I don't mind serving when people see me serving. It's serving and becoming a servant when people don't see me that kind of gets me stuck a little bit. Right? I'm to see myself as a servant. That the purpose of my life is to serve. It gets better. Hang on. Entrusted. Actually, the word there is steward that Paul and the other disciples saw themselves as stewards. And what is a steward? A steward is someone who is asked to manage something, to oversee something, to take care of something that is not their own. In other words, we are servants that have nothing, that everything that we have doesn't belong to us. Everything that we have belongs to him. If you go down to verse 7 in chapter 4, Paul states it a little bit more clearly. What do you have that you did not receive? And if you've received it, and if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? (laughs) It's kind of like driving your daddy's car when you were in high school and pretending like it was really yours. Oswald Chambers put it this way, you cannot dedicate what is not yours There is actually only one thing you can dedicate to God, and that is your right to yourself. In other words, what he's saying is the only thing that we have a right to give to God is our sanity. You know, when you have, let me put it this way. Some of you don't have kids, all right? Uh, Some of you are planning on have kids. God bless you. And uh, when your kids are little, Uh, and you put them in a room full of other kids, here's a word that you will hear in that room of toddlers, probably more than any other word. Mine. You know, they grab stuff, even if it's other kids' toys, and they hoard them, and they go, mine, mine, mine. And we as parents go, well, you know, little Johnny, we share. And so we see maturity now as when our kids get old enough to where they, they go, mine, but I'll also let it be yours, you know? But it's still mine, you know, sharing. And what what Paul is saying is, but real maturity is when we get past the sharing and we realize I have nothing to share, that none of it is mine. None of it. All of it is his. And he's not asking us to say, well, live in that paradigm. You know, I have nothing. That, you know, man, it's just all the Lord's. And try to live that out. He's saying that is the reality. 
that everything belongs to the Lord. Whether you're a believer here today or you're not a believer here today, Scripture makes this proclaim that everything belongs to the Lord. That means I belong to the Lord. I mean, I can understand my money and I can understand my affections and I can understand my stuff, but grab a hold of this. How about your time? Does your time, does your day, does your life, does that belong to you or to the Lord? And Paul was saying here as a servant, as a steward, it does not. The theologian Robert Barron uh, said this, which is kind of bold. At the heart of original sin is the refusal to accept God's rhythm for us. What he was saying there was that Adam and Eve refused to accept the boundaries, the rhythm, the dance of living their lives in accordance with who God is and what he has given them. Even our time. I mean, I find that difficult sometimes to recognize that my day belongs to him. Wow, what kind of servants are we? Will you be praised by God? Well, hang on, let's go back to verse four because it gets better. Paul says, my conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. It's the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. Crud. It's not just, am I a good servant? It's not just, am I a trustworthy steward? It's not just, do I live my life to the rhythm of God and realize that everything is his, including my time? Now it says he's going he's gonna to examine the motives of my heart. He's going to bring it to light. I don't know about you, that's terrifying. You know, all the good things I've done, he's going to shed a light on why I did them? I, come on. I have to be honest with you that I often don't know how to examine my own motives. Do you? I, when I look in my heart and somebody says, well, why are you doing this? I can answer the first thing that comes to my mind, but when I stop and spend time thinking about it, my motives become kind of like a spider web that kind of weave themselves in a lot of different directions. Am I doing this purely because I want to be a servant and I understand that all things belong to the Lord and so I serve you in the name of Jesus Christ? Or am I serving you because it feels good to be a good person? Or I want to feel good as if I'm a good person? Or maybe I'm trying to make up for the fact that I don't feel like I'm a good person. Or maybe I'm trying just simply to get you to like me. And so I'm making cookies for you. Or helping you with your car. Or being a servant with my money. It's kind of like cleaning the kitchen for my mom when I was a teenager. You know what my motivation was there? That she'd let me go out that night. Is that pure motivation? It was then. But Paul, he said, my conscience is clear. But that's not what makes me innocent. Get a hold of this. Paul is saying that even when he searches his own motives, he doesn't see anything there that would condemn him. But even being clear conscience, doing the things that he knows he was supposed to do right, that's not what made him innocent. What did? Okay. Because this is beautiful. Because I want to encourage you today that God will not praise us 
based on how trustworthy a student, our servant, our steward we are. Not based on how great a servant we've become and not based on how perfect my motives are. Scripture says, Christ has become the trustworthy, innocent one. He was the pure servant who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by become, uh, becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That Christ was the true servant. That Christ knew that it was impossible for us to be pure servants to be servants that accomplishes the praiseworthiness of God. And because he knew that, he became our servant with perfect motives. That's why it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, we were covered in sin. Our motives weren't pure. I'm a lousy servant. I'm a poor steward with all the things that God's given me. And I live over here in this place knowing that that's true about me. And if I believe that God is judging me and God is saying, until you get this fixed, you can't come over here and receive my praise, then I'm never going to get over there. And because God knew that, he sent Christ over into my shame place. And Christ took my shame, he took my guilt, he took my sin, he took it upon himself. And what he gave me was his righteousness. He gave me his purity. He gave me his perfect servanthood. He gave me all these things so that I could put them on. In other words, get a hold of this. In one act on the cross of Christ, which we are about to celebrate, what happened in that moment to us that believed? We became children of God. Man, I, I wish we had time to go through all these, but just let them sink in. We became children of God. We became Christ's friends. We were chosen and appointed by Christ to bear the fruit of what he accomplished on the cross. We became sons and daughters. We became those who now have a spiritual father who enjoys calling us his sons and daughters. I'm joint heirs with Christ to share in his inheritance and his kingdom. I am joined to the Lord and am one spirit with Jesus. Wow. I am a member of Christ's body. I am reconciled to God forever. And then we become ministers of reconciliation to where we invite other people into that journey. Wow. Sons and daughters, heirs, saints, fellow citizens of God's people. We are seated in the heavenlies. We're hidden with Christ. We're an expression of the life of Christ because he is in my life. Chosen, holy, dearly loved, chosen, sons and daughters, holy brothers and sisters, partakers of Christ, people for God's own possession to proclaim the excellence of him. Born of God. When Christ died on the cross as a perfect servant, completely obedient, with pure motives, and then rose again to newness of life so he could bring me into that life, here's what he did. He grabbed me and he brought me into his position. And what does that mean? 
that all the things that we just read, those things happened to me when I came into Christ. And so now I stand in the position with the son. And what does the father say about the son? Do you remember when Jesus was baptized and the dove came out of the sky and descended down on Jesus? And what did they hear? My son in whom I am well pleased. If I'm standing in the position with Christ, guess what I get to hear? My son in whom I am well pleased. Do you hear that? That because of what Christ has done, because of the righteousness that he's given me, because of the forgiveness that I have, now I stand in a new place as a holy person who has been set free from that old place and is brought into the new place of being a son, that he delights in me, he rejoices in me, he celebrates me. I am a part of his joy. Now I don't need to stay distance from him. I can run to him because I belong with him. Now I can do battle against my shame, my own disappointment, my sense of failure. And when we do that, something happens. Then we begin to serve. Because here's the beautiful thing. When I'm serving to try to gain approval, my motives are broken, right? When I'm serving my mom by cleaning the kitchen just so I can borrow her car that night, my motives are twisted to self-approval to self-desires. But when I'm serving because I already have what it is that I desire, I'm serving now because I'm delighted in, now my, my motives are what? They're love. I'm, I'm serving now out of what has been poured out on me. And let me tell you this, that no sacrifice is too great for love. You know, yesterday at this wedding, it's always fun to do weddings because, you know, and y'all have heard me say this before, that a bride's never more beautiful than she is in the, in the face of her uh, groom. You know, and I'm walking him, and he's choke, watching him, and he's choking up, and she's coming down, and she's not looking at me. I mean, you know, she's, she's looking straight at him, and they're just locking eyes, and they're, I love you so much, you know. And they get up there, and, you know, it's crazy because I could say anything and they would repeat it, you know. And, you know, and I will give you the PIN number to my bank account. I will give you, because they're just in, engrossed in one another. You know what I'm talking about? And, and at that point, they would vow anything to one another, right? Yes? Okay? Get married and stay married for a couple of years and try that. I mean, it's a beautiful thing because then it takes you much deeper and more in the real journey of forgiveness and love and just the chaos and the beauty of love. But in that moment, when they are so much in love, they literally, two people, say this, I will live with you till I die. Um, Come on! I mean, seriously, because that's what love does, doesn't it? When I am loved, and when I love, I will give everything. When I'm seeking love, I will manipulate and control everything until I find what I want. And guess what happens? I never find it. And that's what the Lord is saying. Here's the paradigm of the gospel. Paul and Apollos were servants. They were stewards. They had given up everything. They even acknowledged, I have nothing. 
even the breath I take. When I wake up in the morning, I get on my knees because that's the rhythm of God that he's calling me to. And this is his life, and I'm going to live it because it's his. Why? Not because they were seeking approval, but because through Jesus Christ, they already had approval. That God was already delighting over them. And they wanted to bring the insanity of their own mind into the light and the ears of hearing their father rejoice. You understand that? That we're bringing the insanity of our own lives into the paradigm that God says, I have given you all things and I rejoice over you. And man, get this. All throughout the scriptures, it has promises in there. Promises to only sons and daughters. But man, when you start drinking in those promises, it's going to mess you up. I was reading this week uh, about a man... In the 1800s, his name was, uh, his last name was Damien. He became Father Damien. He, he uh, entered the priesthood. And uh, God so exploded these things into his life to where he was experiencing the delight of the Father that he said this to God, I'll go wherever you want me to go. Doesn't that just sound like two people about to get married? You know? I will share my whole life with you till death do we part. You know? Because that's what love does. And he goes, I'll go wherever you want me to go. And God says, great, let's go. Father Damien packed his bags and moved to Hawaii. Ooh, suffer. You know? (laughs) It just happened that where he went was a colony where the whole world was shipping people with leprosy. And they didn't know what to do with them. And they didn't want them to infect everybody else. So if you had leprosy, they put you on a ship and they sent you to this island in Hawaii. And you lived in a leper colony with a bunch of strangers until you died. It was miserable. And so he packed his bags. He left all his friends. He left his family. And he went to this island where he started to become the priest. And he found that his life was made up of loving people that were dying. And it even talks about how he would climb the mountains and all over this island, and he called it searching for his lost sheep. Beautiful story. After 16 years, he woke up one morning and realized he had leprosy. And these are some of his last words. I am gently going to my grave. It is the will of God, and I thank him very much for letting me die of the same disease in the the same way as my lepers. I am very satisfied, and I am very happy. We hear that? And does, does that rock you? To think, how could I pray that prayer? the only way we can pray that prayer is when we hear him rejoicing over us. When we know that God is praising me because he has brought me into his family. Because of the work of Christ on the cross, he has redeemed me. He has set me free. He has thrown my sins as far as the east is from the west and he is bringing me into a new reality that I didn't have before that 
rescuing me from myself and setting me free to live a life that is so rich in the reality of knowing that nothing is mine, but everything that he's given me. He's given me so that I can boast in him and be free with. So we're coming to the table. And here's what I'd like us to do as we come to this table. Just a simple process. I'd like for you to come to the table in a spirit of repentance. Repentance that for too long each of us hold on to these things that shame us, that we live in guilt, that we've not believed the rejoicing of our Father and has kept us at a distance. And so we've really held on to the things of this world, hoping to get some kind of life out of them, though they don't give any life. That we would just put that down and come and step into the paradigm of rejoicing that the Lord, as this table will declare, gave his life for us so that we can be those that truly live as free. Because this table is about two things. Jesus said it's about proclaiming, or it's about remembering, remembering who you are and proclaiming. And what does that mean? That we would simply remember, yes, What's been said this morning, I've heard before, but it is like water over my soul. I remember. And then I take that remembrance and I proclaim it over that shame place. I proclaim it over those areas of my life that need to be brought into the paradigm of God's rejoicing. Would you do that? Let's pray. Lord, I know that what we're about to experience, what we're about to step into has very little to do with a piece of bread and a cup of grape juice. It has very little to do with, uh, Lord, a bunch of wooden kneelers and even some music that are playing. I pray, Lord, that you'd send your Holy Spirit now and breathe on this place. Breathe, Lord, in this communion. That, Lord, you would make this time alive with your presence. That you would rejoice over us. That we would hear your delight. That we would know your love. That we would be those that have been found and not just found, but rescued. And not just rescued, but set in a place of honor and called co-heirs with you, Christ. That we would come and drink into that. That we would taste that. That we would live in that. In Christ's name.